DJ Simulationistas, sup, with Dr. D, Dan Raymer, and Dr. J, Janice Palaganis, coming at you from the Center for Medical Simulation in Boston, Massachusetts. So buckle up your mannequin, and let's roll. Welcome to DJ Simulationistas. Sup? You're here with Janice Pelaganis and... And Dan Raymer. Sup, Janice? Sup, Dan. As you know, a couple days ago, Jaden, my son, broke his hand. And, and I just think that the best part of these types of experiences are going into hospital systems and seeing it from the inside, just experiencing it as a patient, as a patient's family member. You know, a lot of standardized patient programs will run what they call secret shoppers to do some systems testing with quality and hospital settings, which I think is fantastic. But I think it's so valuable that going in and seeing a lot of the things that we teach. And I know that you have just recently also been a patient with the laceration. Yes. And so there are so many things that I think I noticed and and two particularly that I'd like to discuss. And I'm interested in your experience and and would love to share my experience as well. Sounds like a very, very rich topic. Okay. The first phenomena, we do this. It's it's very human for teams to do. It's it's a common thing, which I'm going to call it, and I don't know if there's an actual term out there, but I'm going to call it transfer of care backstabbing. (laughs) Because we went from urgent care to to radiology, to uh, hand specialist, to ortho, to casting, to back to radiology. Um, And so we went through multiple departments within the system and every single transfer of care had some sort of backstabbing remark by the the team member. And I just thought, this is so interesting. Vic Brazel and uh, I think it's Jennifer Weller, they talk about tribalism. And I love, you know, particularly Vic Brazel's talk with the smack, how she talks about, you know, what we can do as practitioners to enter, you know, force ourselves to enter the dark side and get to know the other side so that we can start decreasing the the conflict that we have with each other in terms of specialty to specialty. I think there's things that family members and patients can do in the moment. And so I'm wondering if you had that experience at all. I know you were just at urgent care, but you've had multiple experiences as family member as well. So yes, I I agree with you. Let me make sure I understand what you mean. You show up at the next station and they say something kind of snarky about the prior station. Yes. Yes. And it was so well I wouldn't have done it that way or they shouldn't have sent you here or they some comment about the prior uh, prior group. Yeah, uh, I've certainly experienced that, you know, multiple times. I I actually take some solace in that Uh because I think the way the system operates is really 
pretty difficult for patients. So I have to preface anything I say by by saying that I see extraordinary care. I've experienced extraordinary care, just truly extraordinary care from virtually all of the people in healthcare that I've dealt with uh-huh. on an individual basis. But I can't help but notice the team phenomena that make it so difficult sometimes. So clearly, you know, you have these incredibly knowledgeable and talented people who each care so much. When people make a snarky comment about the last practitioner, it almost says to me, oh my goodness, thank goodness there's no conspiracy here where they're all uh, uh, keeping quiet, sort of like on the airlines. You know, when things go bad on the airlines, uh, they all tell you the same thing, that they don't know anything. And you just know it isn't true, Yeah, but they (laughs) hold to a party line. Thank goodness that healthcare isn't so sophisticated in its disorganization to be able to (laughs) convey that. And so when someone confides in me that they don't agree with the last person, Uh I think, oh, good, that's so human. (laughs) They're actually talking to me as a human being. So you're going exactly where I want to talk about. So there's two things I'd like to talk about around this. The first is I'd like to normalize it, which I think you just did. When I used to practice, I I guess you get desensitized to it because it just becomes common. So I think it's normal, yet I want to explore why we do it. Why do we feel the need to do that, right? And then the second is what can we do as a patient or a family member that can help in self-reflection in that moment that could potentially transform perspectives to that provider that just kind of gave us that comment. This is something that I have thought about a lot because I've been a patient a number of times. I've had some serious illnesses in my in my lifetime, and I've had family members who've had uh, you know real um, real medical difficulties. And so I've been been with them uh, uh, many times in, in care settings. I just think it's a shame that we don't have more of a team model in healthcare where several members of different tribes meet with a patient at the same time. Right. Uh, and I've sat there being so frustrated in a hospital room where where one specialty comes in and then moments later the next specialty comes in and they and ask you the same question. The next specialty comes in <laughs> and they all they all contradict each other. And and you just want to say, could you people, can we just do a a doodle poll and figure out where we could all be here at the same time (laughs) and we could work this out and come to some agreement on what the problem is and what to do about it. And it just never, ever in my experience seems to happen. I think it's structure. I think it's tradition. I think, you know, even though healthcare is a team sport, yeah. We play it like an individual sport. <laughs> so true. I'm just going to go back to what you had said previously. It happens outside of healthcare. And why do we have to do that? Like, what is it? Is it that we're trying to up our credibility that we have to put down the other department? You know, what, what is it? What, what human nature 
makes this so normal? I'm not an anthropologist or a sociologist, <laughs> so I don't certainly don't know. It seems like it's a very natural tribal activity. Hmm. It's heart it's heartwarming that we do all have different opinions when somehow those different opinions do you know, come together and get integrated, things can be better than on an individual basis. And so we kind of know that intuitively. And somehow we're just very clumsy about putting a a team's powerful ideas and debates together in one setting. So you brought up what what family members can do about this. Yeah. And uh, I had this experience um, myself. I was in the hospital and I was very ill and, uh, uh, you know, there were large teams taking care of me. And uh, uh, one day they sent in the medical student to come and talk to me. Mm -hmm. And he said something to the effect of, we decided to do the following with you. Because of the power position, I think I felt like I could uh, challenge him. And I said, mm-hmm. you know, like, who's we? How, how dare you say we decided to do something about me without including me in that discussion? <laughs> and and the... I practically brought him to tears. Yes. And he got oh, up and he laughed and he got the resident to come and talk to me. And she came in and she said basically the same thing. And I proceeded to bring her to tears as I berated her for having the nerve to say that they all met and decided what they were going to do about me. She left and she got the fellow. (laughs) And the fellow came in. It said the same thing. She was... She was made of tougher stuff and had seen <laughs> difficult patients before, and I couldn't make her cry, but I did challenge her <laughs> to the extent that she was able to get the senior attending who came in eventually, and he was also the chief of service, a very imposing gentleman. He began to talk to me and told me what they had decided, basically he had decided to do with me. And I was totally intimidated. And I basically said, thank you, sir. (laughs) And, you know, afterwards, um, I, I, I I just thought it was so fascinating how the power structure affected even me as the patient. Yes. And I realized what I failed to do was make a contract with him at the outset. And what I should have done Mm -hmm. is said to him in my first meeting with him, uh, by the way, I'm the kind of individual who likes to know everything about my care. And in fact, I'd like to be involved in every decision you make. If you could hold rounds in my room instead of in the hallway outside of my room, Mm -hmm. I would really appreciate it. And I'm guessing he would have kind of looked at me strangely and said, okay, whether he would have done it fully or not, I'm not sure. But Mm -hmm. the 
interaction that I wanted was something I would have had to ask for. You know, I want you to act like a team mm-hmm. with me as part of the team instead of, you know, serial will talk to you and then they'll talk to you and then the other people will talk to you and we'll each decide things in our own little huddles outside your room as we walk down the hallway. I don't think, brilliant, Dan, that that's the way to handle healthcare. I don't know that I could ever pull it off. (laughs) Well, that's funny. You're talking about patient advocacy and, and we do, you know, they get little pamphlets when they register saying you are part of the team, speak up. You know, they, they do go through this during registrations, at least in the hospitals that I've worked. And yeah, there's much more to it. it. It's a very, very powerful phenomenon. I, as a patient, felt so strongly and I could stand up to the everyone in the hierarchy until we got to the guy who, <laughs> you know, knew well, a lot more than me and was, you know, just had <laughs> prestige factor and just power. And, and I, I, I folded. What I love about your reflection, Dan, is maybe that's why we do it, because we've had so many experiences with patients who clearly go up that hierarchy and we see the difference in the respect the patient gives with these power levels. And so credibility in that initial interaction when a patient first comes in is so key, like that first impression. And maybe that's why we backstab the previous department to gain that credibility. I don't know if it's about Uh, credibility. I wish I knew it is such an interesting thing. And I wish someone who was an anthropologist or a <laughs> sociologist would study this because I think it does get to the root of our problem in healthcare in America anyways, uh, um, probably elsewhere as well, that this lack of, you know, team behavior mm-hmm. uh, leads to a lot of anxiety for patients. Well, so my experience was really different. And I think it's because we teach to this that I was able to recognize it. No, I should not say that because Jaden picked up on it when we first got to the hospital. He was like, those were some sharp comments. And it was, they were comments about urgent care. And (laughs) I thought that was interesting that he picked up on it. And so I kind of, you know, not that I'm proud of saying this, but I was just observing. I was in this observing role up until the casting room. And then I felt like, okay, there, there's something I could do. And, and let me just play around here. So, so I just have to say everybody we came across, we loved. They gave him great care. And, it, and those comments, you know, from a research perspective for me were very interesting. They were not helpful at all to, <laughs> to our actual care. And so when we got to the casting room, one of the last departments that we encountered, the casting guy was amazing. He was, he was, I guess, the casting tech. He was really amazing, and he was actually pretty fun to, to be around. And I don't know, maybe it was something about his personality that allowed me to, like, play a little bit with how can I approach this. He started complaining about the instructions that he got from the hand surgeon. I said, well, he's not a casting expert like you are, and I'm sure he was doing his best to, you know, put in the instructions. And he said, yeah, I could sense the tone in his voice change the second time he made the phone call. 
after I had made that comment because um, he did call once to clarify and then he called back again to clarify something else. And his his voice changed. And I don't know. It could have been his personality. It could have been the fact that he and I were laughing about some things that put him in a better mood. I don't know. What do you think? I guess I never know. That's such an individual phenomenon. I'm not sure. I think the insistence on people talking to each other probably is something that we can do as, as patients. People need some empowerment. So if, uh, you know, someone lower on the totem pole uh, in the hierarchy of healthcare feels like they need more information or something and in their heart they want to communicate with the person above them if the patient empowers them and says i really want you to do this then it's becomes much easier than overcoming the natural barriers that might affect someone gee i don't i know they're busy i don't want to bother them i don't want to sound stupid i don't want to say the wrong thing there are all sorts of barriers that i think are just very natural human things that keep people from essentially speaking up and if the patient says I really want you to call the doctor to clarify that before you put a cast on my kid's hand, then it's easy to say to the doctor, uh, uh, the patient insisted that I call you uh, to clarify this. It just makes it all easier. So Mm -hmm. I I think it is a role that, that patients can play to insist on teamwork. I did have an experience that speaks to this, I think. My dear mother, uh, who has since uh, passed on, had a falling episode. And so she went into the hospital and uh, she was, uh, it was over the weekend. And so she was under the care of, it turned out to be a hospitalist. I was in the room with her and several people came into the room to change her beta blocker dose and mm-hmm. and drug actually and finally i was just i was just kind of sitting there baffled by this and in walked the uh what turned out to be the hospitalist and she started right in with uh so mrs raymer we um uh, we've decided to change your beta blocker to blo-, and, and i said excuse me who are you And she looked at me and realized her error in communication with patients and said, I am so sorry. Oh, my goodness. I am the hospitalist. Uh, I am taking care of your mother. Um, You know, she introduced herself. She asked me who I was. She stopped and said, you know, we just sometimes don't communicate well here. And I'm so sorry about that. And she then gave me the history of all the changes that had occurred in their thinking about the beta blocker and who all was involved in it. And, and I, I felt like just stopping her in her tracks made her a better clinician in that moment. Um, well, I, I don't know. So I think you're right. It is individual to the situation. I believe in your situation that you're talking about right now, you were lucky that she was reflective enough to stop and agree because I can just see another person. You could have come across someone that'd be like, what? (laughs) And just kept going, right? So true. 
so true. I have had not quite the exact same experience, but experiences where the person has not stopped in their tracks and improved in the moment. I just think that it cost me nothing to stop her in her tracks. And in that case, and I think in a lot of cases would be helpful because I think, you know, every clinician is is a, is a person just like us and they're caring and they're, you know, incredibly well-trained and uh, they mean to do the right thing. And I think it's the rare exception of people who would continue to be rude. I was pushed to to a point beyond my usual politeness to be able to stop her. And so I think being a patient, being a family member, and being able to affect the system in a positive way is very challenging. It's extremely challenging. I totally agree. And I think, you know, as you're talking about the story, and I'm, I'm having flashbacks to working in the emergency department, there's this, like, there's a dance that goes on. And it's, it's funny. It reminds me of, like, a restaurant phenomena. Like, if you're not happy with the food, the last person you want to upset is your waiter or waitress because they have your food back <laughs> and you have no idea what they're going to do. And they didn't it's, cook it. <laughs> and you have no idea what's going to happen. And and even worse in healthcare because they've got you, your like life and your well-being and procedures on the line. Like there are, you know, you don't want to upset the the people that have your life in their hands. You're very, and, very, very vulnerable in, yes. in a healthcare setting. And so even though there are things patients can do, I think the notion that they're the key uh, to this is probably naive. Yeah. So it was interesting because Jenny and I had a really great discussion around speaking up. Jenny Rudolph, she was talking about how she thought her new kind of view is that speaking up is the first volley in, I think she said negotiation. Oh gosh, I hope I'm not misquoting her here. I'm thinking that there's a precursor to speaking up and that's the, the person that you're speaking up to. Do they have that in, you know, the invitation or the even nonverbal, whether it's the perception of your personality that you're allowing them to speak up. I wonder if you sensed that with the person or maybe not. There's just certain people like the person you said you were intimidated by that I'm not sure, you know, it's very difficult to, to speak up in those situations. So true. So true. It's so complicated. And I think you're right. It has to do with nonverbals. It also has to do with their age, perhaps. It has to do with their biography. And so, you know, when I think of the guy who intimidated me, maybe it was his, you know, his biography. I knew he was the chief of service for a you know, big medical center. Did you have grayer hair than he did? Uh, probably, you know, I probably, I, I probably was older than him, maybe. So this is interesting. But he was older than all of the people I was able to intimidate. <laughs> so, so the medical student and the resident and the fellow were all considerably younger than me. Actually, the funniest part of that story is that uh, that one of our colleagues who works with us in simulation happened to be visiting me when this all happened. Uh-huh. And, and 
and she's a she's a physician and she was so blown away by my behavior she just couldn't <laughs> she had never pictured me being so abusive to students because I'm always so nice to them when I teach, uh, and and you know that I that I bought real literally brought them the medical student to the verge of tears. Uh, you know to... they do say that once you become a patient, your true self shows. Uh, I, I have no, <laughs> you know, I have no doubt I was in a lot of pain. And uh, I hadn't had much sleep, and I was heavily medicated, and uh, all those things are excuses. But I think the truth is that it uh, kind of, kind of uh, took away all my tactfulness and filters and all the things that uh, hide my true self, because I was pretty angry about the notion that they were deciding what to do with me. <laughs> This does bring up, uh, you know, how do you get some of these messages across in simulation? And and as simulationistas, uh, you know, what can we do to, you know, move the 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 token down the field? Yeah. In in this regard. Well, I love I love when I hear standardized patient programs using their standardized patients for kind of secret shopper transfer of care systems assessment for quality in their organization, because I think that's just insightful data. You know, it's really awful that I've had all of these experiences uh, as a patient. You know, that's sad in a way. It's also very sad that I've had, you know, a pretty good list of bad experiences in the hospital to go along with the extraordinary care that me and my family members have received over the years. Mm -hmm. In simulation, I often try to tell stories or pieces of stories to kind of generalize the points. I think that's important. I I think it's important to have real life stories to be able to generalize to the real setting. Uh, When things come up in simulation about the siloed nature of uh, healthcare, about how team members don't talk to each other uh, efficiently, about how interactions with the patient happen serially and not together. Mm-hmm. I'll often tell a story about my personal experience in that regard, and I think they're helpful. Maybe they're boring, but <laughs> I think they're helpful for people to really think about, you know, what is this like in real life? And is this just a simulation? Or is this really meaningful to the care that I provide to, uh, to patients with my colleagues? I also am thinking about, you know, how do you simulate this? Because the natural behavior of, uh, of this transfer of care backstabbing probably won't show face given the biases of simulation, people knowing that they're being recorded, they're being, you know, they're here for a learning experience, probably wouldn't show naturally from the learners, or the participants, and but could be structured in as a embedded simulated practitioner to be worthy of discussing. And it's it's a shame because I would love to create some sort of simulation where, where it's real enough that 
people would do that, do their natural, you know, backstabbing that you, you see as a patient and a family member. I, I think that's so true, so difficult to accomplish. I know that I uh, have taught groups of anesthesiologists many times over the years. I've also done simulations with groups of surgeons, and I've done simulations with the surgeons and the anesthesiologists together. And I have to say, I'm always impressed at how negative, critical, and snarky each group is individually about the other group. But when you get them together in the same simulation, they say exactly the opposite. And so the complaints that the anesthesiologists have about the surgeons and the overgeneralizations about how um, disinterested they are and how distant they are and how, you know, just, just all kinds of bad things they'll say in, uh, when, they're, when the surgeons aren't there, they tell you the exact opposite. <laughs> when they're together. Oh, we work together really well. No, the surgeons uh, the surgeons that I work with are all really oh, great Dan, communicators. I love Dan Raymer. <laughs> it's like, it, yeah, it's so funny. So, you know, I think you're right that, uh, that in simulation, people generally are on their best behavior. Yet sometimes things come out and they come out in ways that let you make a teaching point or people have realizations about, you know, their behavior. I think people are kind of unaware of these things in themselves. And so, you know, when they see them on video or hear themselves saying something and you, you stop them and point it out, I think that can be really helpful. And I, I would love for someone to research this. Such a great um, research topic. Yeah, right. All right. Well, thanks, Dan. This is fun. Thank you, Janice. And uh, I, I hope Jaden's uh, hand gets better quickly. And I'm glad. I that, sure uh, hope so, too. Good care. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. Bye. DJ Simulationistas. What's up? Is brought to you by the Center for Medical Simulation. Find out more about CMS and learn about our simulation instructor training and course offerings at www.harvardmedsim.org. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.